Amen. God is so good. He's so faithful. He walks with us through every moment of our life, whether it's a high or a low. God is with us. Amen? Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. And again, welcome to everyone who's joining us here from home, uh, here at River Hills Church. I'm, so, uh, I'm proud of all of you who have braved the weather. Of course, we don't care, right? We're, we're Wisconsinites, man. It doesn't matter. So my sound guy is signaling to me that something's wrong. He wants my microphone closer to my mouth. Okay, there we go. Is that better? Very good. Well, today we are talking about the meaning of the death of Christ. The meaning of the death of Christ. And this is, this is an intense topic. And I'll tell you, I was raised in the Catholic tradition. And one of the things that we did was something called the Stations of the Cross. And if you grew up with that, boy, I mean, I was so touched by this as a child. And, and all around the, the sanctuary where they held the Mass, they had these little plaques on the wall, and they would, with incense, walk around and commemorate all of the different facets of the death of Christ. And first grade, second grade, third grade, all the, I cried every time. It just touched me. I, you know, I was not um, immunized okay, to the pain of the crucifixion. It was so intense that actually as an adult, when Mel Gibson came out with the Passion movie, I knew I couldn't watch it. I still haven't seen it, okay? It's too intense for me. The, 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 the how Christ died is too real for me to just watch as if it were entertainment, okay? So that's where I'm at. So well, we're not going there, thankfully, today. I'm not going to go into the blood and the guts and the gore of the death of Christ. We're going to talk about the meaning, the meaning of Christ's death. And I've got a kind of a different approach to this process. Let me tell you about my cousin Sean. My cousin Sean lives in Boston. He's a scientist. He has a PhD. Uh, you know, spent as a PhD, I don't know what you know what that means. That, that means like spending seven years growing rats, okay? He was a mice guy. He had to have all of these sample bodies to work with. But eventually, out came the human genome study. And Sean was able to match up the human genome and, and actually in the mice that he worked with, and they were able to identify the cells that led to sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia is a horrible disease affecting a, a portion of our population. There has never been a cure. It's a horrible, painful disease where, where your blood cells turn into little sickles. And as they pass through your bloodstream, they get stuck. And you have these episodes of, of huge physical pain and stress because your blood can't get through. It's like a heart attack everywhere. Can you imagine? Every place in your body suddenly being constricted, the blood cannot flow. People who have sickle cell, they die. The episodes are so painful. People who have sickle cell cannot fly. If you go up in the air, the constriction, the air pressure changes, and, you, and they can have an episode. You're not allowed to fly if you have sickle cell. All of these restrictions, and even the pain and the death, all happens from sickle cell anemia. Well, Sean and some scientists in Boston matched up in the human genome these cells and figured out using a technology called CRISPR. So stay right here. Now stay right there at that CRISPR, the first one. Now, uh, this is technology. You don't have to be interested in this. Go back to the summary, please. 
but this is the write-up, okay? This is the write-up on the, on the first time in the history of the world that two people were cured of sickle cell. And this explains how, using this technology, they were able to identify the, the, the DNA that was bad and then took healthy DNA and inserted it into these two patients. And these two patients were cured. And you'll see that I have it underlined in the elimination of vaso-occlusive vaso episodes. So our medical professionals in here, you could probably describe this better than I can, but that's the episode where the blood blocks the flow, the, the sickle cells block the flow, and this, this got healed. So this young lady who got healed um, from this process, she bought a plane ticket and flew out to Boston to meet my cousin Sean. Is that not cool? Praise the Lord for this, for this technology. Now, I'm a little worried because who knows where we'll go from here, right? Who, where sickles, where uh, a CRISPR technology will take us uh, from here. But in the meantime, this is a fascinating and, uh, and wonderful thing that we can uh, cure people by replacing a fragment of their DNA. That's kind of a great image, isn't it? This idea that there's a broken piece that can be pulled out and a new piece put in. This is exactly what we're talking about today. The meaning of the death of Christ is crisper for humanity. That God says, you have this thing in you that's broken, this messed up part of you that needs to come out, needs to be replaced. And I've got just the thing for you. Just the thing is Jesus Christ. Now, we all experience this idea of being messed up, don't we? That's how we refer to it here at River Hills, the mess up this. And, and boy, being messed up is such a drag. You, you know, you can't fix it, right? You just can't fix it. I, 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 you know, I, I apologize, but still the damage is done. I try to change my behavior, but I continue in sin. I continue to screw up, right? And if you're, if you're into trying to go back and fix the things that you broke in the past, if you ever try to do that, that's one of those um, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, steps is to go back and try to make retribution if you can't. It, it just, it's, it so rarely works. Uh, you're just digging up old wounds. It's what I call fail army. I don't know if you've ever seen fail army on TV. You know, it's that series of clips they do where showing everybody failing. You know, they're skateboarding or they're, they're playing some sport or dancing or just showing off and crashing into stuff and busting their bodies. It's, it's pretty funny. But we sit there and we groan. Oh, oh, oh. We watch every piece and it's like, oh gosh, this is horrible. Why am I watching this show? Fail army. That's what it's like trying to fix our problems ourselves. But God fixes it for us, right? That's what God's DNA, God's CRISPR is for us. The gracious gift is not like the offense, for if by the offense the one, the many died, much more the grace of God by the gift of the grace of the one man overflows to the many. God's CRISPR applies to everybody all at once. You know, uh, it's one little tiny piece of DNA. They give you some fluids, probably some IV solutions, maybe an injection, but it works its way into your entire organism. The same with Jesus Christ. We, we confess a sin to him. We proclaim something that's broken. We ask him to fix it for us. 
he doesn't just fix that. He goes in and he addresses our whole character. That's awesome. Now, now that I've established the, the reality, we all know, right, that we're messed up and that we need something fixed in us and that God can do this through Jesus Christ. I want to I show you that the meaning of Christ's death, as explained in the Bible, is very purposeful. You see, we, we know that all have sinned and, and, and we fall short, but the thing is, is that our consciences continue to smite us. Our consciences, even when we go and we do fix things, even then when we do f f uh, get forgiveness, we still feel guilty. And that is what the Bible is trying to do, is convince us that, in fact, the work of God is complete. Well, we've got to look back at the Bible story and see that, the, the, remember, the Bible is written uh, not to us, but for us. It was written to these people in, in, in ancient times, and they had this one underlying concept that they just bought into in every area of their lives, and that was, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They believe this in civil law. They believe this in criminal law. They believe this in relationship to one another. They believe this in their relationship to God. Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? They believed that there had to be the shedding of blood in order for there to be forgiveness in every area of their lives. Well, this is such an old idea. You know, it's been 2,000 years since we've done animal sacrifices. We don't really get that anymore. We can just forgive one another. We don't require these penalties. But the people that the story was written to, they believed it. And they had to be convinced otherwise. And so the, the authors, the Bible writers, they, they have all of these stories, all of these images, all of these analogies. They keep trying to drive the message in that Jesus is that new sacrifice. And that's what this is for. That's what these messages are for. So we have four areas here, four ritual areas that are described um, in the readings this past week. And the first one has to do with, a, with, a, with Jesus' death as the full and complete sin offering. Now, sin offerings, again, not something that we do, right? We're just, we don't do sin offerings. But those people back then, man, all the time. You know, mostly they did pigeons. But if you were poor, you could get by with some grain offerings, all right? But if you were anybody of standing, you would do a goat or a lamb, and they had to be one without blemish. And if you were a big shot, you did a bull, okay? And they did sacrifices up the wazoo all the time. In fact, all the transactions they did, like when they did business, you know, they would, you know, buy food for supper this week, and they'd say, yeah, I'll have three pigeons. That's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Make it four, one for Saturday's offering. You know, they would plan for these sin offerings. It was part of their daily, their daily life. They did it all the time, okay? But again, the sin offering did not cleanse their consciences. It didn't cleanse their consciences. It, it was a ritual cleansing, but it didn't actually make them feel like they were forgiven, right? This is what they did, the sin offering. The next ritual was the Passover lamb. Another very symbolic thing for Christ's followers, the Passover lamb. Now, this goes back to Leviticus, to Exodus, right? Remember, the Jewish people are in captivity. They're slaves in Egypt. And the plagues come. And the last plague 
is the angel of death that passes over. And as the angel of death passes over, the people of Israel, um, they, they sacrifice an unblemished lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorposts. And then the angel of death passes over them. They don't, no one in their household dies. So that's, that's the Passover story. And this is huge for the people of that time because what happens now is after this, you know, they, they're set free from Egypt. You know, remember the movie, right? Pharaoh says, finally go. You know, you've killed my son. Go. And they leave. And they, 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 they get their freedom. They become a new people, a new distinct people. They go out and they become the 12 tribes instead of just being the captive people, Okay. So the Passover is huge, full of uh, symbolism for us, the blood, right? It's the blood of Jesus that is put over our doorposts and protects us from the penalty of sin. It's the doorway into our homes, right, or into our hearts. Remember, Jesus says, I am the door, right? We pass through the door. And so he's the door, he's the blood, and he is the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb. Uh, the next item, uh, what we have here, okay. So how much more the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, right? Cleansing our conscience, not just our bodies, but our, our consciences from dead works. You know, these ritual sacrifices that the, the Jewish people did, uh, they were also into ritual bathing. Now, they had a thing, every household pretty much had a, a mitzpah, and a mitzpah was like a big carved bathtub, all right? And it was full of pure water, and they would immerse themselves in these mitzpah ritual baths regularly. And in fact, they would shower or bathe before they went into the mitzpah, okay? When I went to Israel last year, we wandered around these old archaeological digs. We went to the Canaanite digs. They have mitzvahs too. We went, we went all, 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 every place we went, there were archaeological relics of mitzvahs. So this idea of ritually cleaning themselves, of, of submerging themselves um, in the water, uh, also another symbol of, of Christ and of baptism, right? That this, this ritual cleansing. But again, the ritual cleansing did not um, clean their conscience. They still felt self-conscious. They still felt aware of their sin. And in fact, in a lot of ways, um, what Jesus is saying is, look, those things, they not only didn't cleanse your conscience, but they didn't change your behavior. You know, you would do a, a ritual cleansing and then you would still neglect the poor. You would do a, a ritual cleansing or a sin offering and then you would still rip somebody off in a business transaction. Okay? Um, these things are not changing your heart. These are the rules and the laws and the rituals of old times. Jesus has a new way where, because our conscience is clean and we want to preserve our clear conscience, now we don't rip people off. We don't abuse our neighbor. We don't speak ill of others, right? Because our conscience is to be protected. We want to be aware and conscious of our, of our conscience, all right? the ultimate Passover lamb. The third ritual is the final atonement sacrifice. Now, this is an interesting scripture reference. Here's, a, here's an image of it. Uh, what would happen, this is, this is an example of what they called Yom Kippur. And this is the Jewish annual ritual where the priests would come into the Holy of Holies 
with the blood from the animals they sacrificed. And here he is sprinkling the blood on the ark, okay, on the ark of the covenant and around the ark of the covenant. Now, we just had a uh, blood drive here uh, Friday. And, uh, you know, we watch TV, we see a lot of blood if we're in the action movies or superheroes, you know, or Die Hard, right? There's a lot of blood stuff. And usually blood and death is kind of, blood is associated with death. But actually blood is associated with life, right? Uh, Faith, what does it say on the, uh, the pulse uh, in regard to the blood drive? It says, give, what's, the, what's, their, what's their little phrase? Give blood, give life. Right? Give blood, give life. So the shedding of his blood brings life. Okay? It's not death that's bringing, it's sprinkling the blood in the, in the sacrifice of atonement. It is actually uh, bringing life. Now, there's something interesting about this particular scripture that I'd like to call to your attention. Um, this phrase, sacrifice of atonement, that's fine. Sacrifice of atonement here in Romans. This particular instance of the phrase sacrifice of atonement is a Greek word that actually means the lid or the cover on the ark. It means the lid or the cover. So God is offering his son Jesus to us as the lid, as the cover on the ark, right, that we receive through faith, that cleanses our sins. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because I really want to be honest with you about reading the Bible. I've been reading the Bible for a long time, and I like it. It's, it's, it's something I enjoy doing. But, you know, I don't always understand it. I don't always get it. Sometimes when I read it, it doesn't, frankly, it's just not making sense to me. I don't understand. And this is an example of that. How is it that Jesus is the ark lid and it's also his blood that's sprinkled on it at the same time. It's like, it's just that was too many images for me. Well, you know, the Jewish people that, that this was written to, they could handle it. They, they, they loved all the images. They get the nuance, the, the, the story within the story within the story, right? Inside the ark, there were all these relics uh, that demonstrated the presence of God and his influence over their lives, his protection over their lives. And then there's the, the lid that's holding uh, all those relics in the box. And, and then when the angels are sitting on the lid too with their arms over the middle, and that's where the blood would be sprinkled, and faith would call that the mercy seat. That was called the mercy seat. So Christ was in the mercy seat. And he's also the blood that's being sprinkled on the ark. Okay, so all of these depths of meaning it's all just to try to convince the Jewish people, and by extension us, that Christ's work was sufficient. That he wasn't just the lamb, but he's the lamb and the blood on the Passover, on the Passover doorposts. He's not just the, the, uh, the, the sin offering, but he's also the final sin offering, the full atonement for even all the unknown sins of the world, or un, unspoken sins, Right? the final atonement sacrifice. He's, he's all of these things. He's the lid. He's the box. He's the blood. He's, 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 he's everything. And they keep driving this message home over and over and over again so that they would, frankly, get it. That so, at some point, the light would click, you know, that would turn on. And we're like, oh, that's what you mean. And so that's where we are when we read the Bible. 
we're doing the same thing. We're looking for the nuggets of understanding. And sometimes the nuggets pass you by. Sometimes you don't get it right away. And Faith told me this once before when she read, read something she didn't understand. She said, I just put that in my pocket. I put it in my pocket. I don't have to figure it out right away. I'll get to that. The Spirit will reveal it to me in time. I don't have to know right now. Okay? I love that word. I think it's a good encouragement to us. Now, there's a fourth thing that's done here in these ritual um, uh, these rituals that are referenced here in our reading, and that is this thing called the place of covenant initiation. Covenant initiation. Now, when I was in uh, undergraduate college back at UW-Platteville, I, I joined Alpha Phi Omega. It's a national service fraternity. Great group of guys and gals who were affiliated with the Boy Scouts and partied way too much. In order to get in, I had to do a covenant initiation ceremony. Right? I, was, I pledged to join, and they put me through the ringer. I, and I can't even tell you all the things they did to me. Right? It's supposed to be a secret. Yeah. Um, shout out to my APO brothers out there. Yeah. So we all also saw another covenant initiation ceremony just this past week, right? Where the, the president came to Washington, D.C., and in a big ceremony, put his hands on the Bible and swore an oath to defend the Constitution, right? He swore an oath. It, he made a covenant with us. He swore an oath, made a covenant at a ceremony. How's that for a real life, right? That just happened. We all saw that, okay? So here's Bernie at the Blue Spoon. I don't know if you saw Bernie at the, at the inauguration ceremony with his fancy mittens on, everyone's cutting and pasting him, putting him all over the place. So he was out at the Blue Spoon the other day. Um, I heard it actually from uh, Bernie. He was over at Wittenbox. And uh, Wittenbox, you know, is now selling uh, genetically modified pork products. That's right. So you can buy crisper bacon. Okay, you like that one? All right. Get back to the topic, Dennis says. Okay. So this ark here, this ark that's referenced, um, has to do, again, with the covenant. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I, I want to, to say again, uh, uh, to, not to create confusion, uh, but to, to bring some clarity to this use of the word covenant. You see, we see it all throughout the Old and New Testament, the word covenant. And sometimes the word covenant means something other than what you think it means the first time you read it. There's two types of covenant in the Bible. There's covenant where God's talking about his promises, and then there's the covenant that's talking about the First Testament, the, the Old Testament, and then the New Testament, the covenant that means a will, right? Talks about our inheritance. Talks about the laws and the rules and the, the, the paradigm, right, of those two ideas. So here in Hebrews uh, 8.10 is the example of covenant being a promise. It says, for this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a promise for us today. God is still writing his laws on our hearts and minds. 
That's why we don't do the 743 laws of the Torah. We don't, we don't have to have it written down to tell us what it means to love our neighbor. We love our neighbor, right? What that means, how we implement, right, the laws of God is in our mind and in our hearts and not in the letter of the law. So this is happening every day. Every day when you get up and you say, hey, God, thanks for another day. What are we doing? What's going on today, Lord? He says, I'm with you. Pay attention. Be ready. And he prompts you on how to love your neighbor. He prompts you to call a friend. He prompts you to reach out. He prompts you to die to yourself, right? That's being written on your heart and your mind. This is a covenant promise for all time. But contrasting this, just three verses later, is where the covenant is being referred to as in, in terms of a testament. He says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. He's making the first covenant obsolete by having a new covenant. Well, this is the testament. This is, you know, you can only have one will in effect at a time. In fact, if you write a will, you'll see there's a line in there that says, this will circumvents all previous wills, codiciles and our other testamentary and from, and from, you know, documentation. This is it, right? It replaces the previous will. You can't have a will, incidentally. A will does not mean anything until someone dies. The one who writes it has to die, and then the will takes effect. Okay. So, again, with the covenant initiation ceremony, that the testament of Christ Jesus, where he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the final and full sin offering. I am the final and full atonement sacrifice. I am the Passover lamb. All of this happens together at his death. At his death, that's the initiation into the new covenant that we now celebrate as Christ followers. All right? So again, the purpose of all of these stories and these analogies is for, for, to convince our hearts to cleanse our consciences because we're aware of our mess-upness and we're aware that we can't fix it ourselves. And so he says, hey, I'm your crisper. Take my son into your life. Take his DNA into your life and I will work my way through your body and into your body, into your community, into your country, into this world and I will change you I will make you new. I will cleanse you, right? And don't try to do the old stuff anymore. Got it? That's what the meaning of Christ is about. But there's one more thing. There really is no meaning to anything, pardon my deconstructionism, until you implement it. You know, you got to live this thing. You can't just talk about it. You just can't be theological or ideological, right? Your ideas are called orthodoxy, and it's important that we live right. But, I mean, that we believe right, that's orthodoxy. But living right is the word orthopraxy. And we have to add living right to believing, believing right. And so there's three responses that we have to the meaning of Christ's death. The first response is to proclaim. If you read that New Testament, you look around, it's going to tell you all over the place that you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ raised from the dead and you will be saved, 
right? And that we are to go tell the whole world that his death was not in vain, that he died to save our sins and set us free, that he didn't come to judge the world but to save the world. We proclaim this. Honestly, friends, if you're not sure where you're at with God, tell somebody about him. There's nothing that will seal the deal in your life like taking a stand for him and saying, I believe in the risen Lord. I believe in the death of Christ. I believe. Proclaim him. Second item. Dennis covered this a few weeks ago. Take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and live for him. Care about others. Care about the lost. Care about the poor. Care about the disenfranchised. Care about your enemies. Love your enemies. If you're wondering, <laughs> you know, am I living for God? Ask yourself, how am I treating my enemies? That's pretty much the tell-all, right? Because it's easy for me to love Paul and Julia. You guys are sweet. We're on the same team. It's all good. You even got the right haircut. Right? Whoops. All right. Thanks, Dennis. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Right? So that's the deal, right? Without blood, the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But, and all, all are falling short, right? All of us are messed up. But God provides his son Jesus through CRISPR technology, right? To remove our defective DNA and insert his perfect unblemished DNA, which transforms us, right? Through and through, okay? And then we respond by proclaiming him and by dying to ourselves. And then there's one more thing that we do. And that's that we actually celebrate his death. We celebrate and remember the death of Christ. You know, I'm reading a couple books this past year. I'm reading this, this book about anthropology. And the anthropologist goes to this primitive culture and he tries to figure out, what are you talking about? What do you mean you got to do this and you got to do that? Why do you do these things? You know, if an anthropologist was all of a sudden fell into our church and he would say, so you celebrate this guy's death. I thought you guys were afraid of death. I thought death was your enemy. I thought death was bad. What, what do you mean you celebrate his death? Well, we do. We celebrate the death of Christ because it is, right, the, the covenant initiation ceremony that leads us all into the kingdom. It's by his death that we're set free. The band's going to come up now and uh, um, play some more worship songs for us, and then Dennis is going to lead us in communion, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these examples of your, of your goodness at work. Thank you that you are the, the sin offering, and you are the Passover lamb, and you are the final atonement, and through your death, through the the covenant initiation ceremony, we enter into um, this place. Thank you, Lord.